the skin is smooth and the features are soft. The patterns of face and... The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, September 12th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on The Dispatch, I talked to Gregor Matson about AI that supposedly has better gaydar than humans. If you're going to make these kind of claims, you need to grapple with the fact that they've been failing for over 150 years. Here's The Dispatch. The Future. Last week, a study came out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that made a particularly dystopian claim that off-the-shelf artificial intelligence tools can now detect who is gay simply by looking at a photo of a person's face. The authors are Michelle Kaczynski and Elon Wong, both of Stanford University. They claimed that their findings provided, quote, strong support for the idea that sexual orientation is caused by hormone exposure in the womb. They also claimed to be doing the LGBTQ community a service by exposing how artificial intelligence could hypothetically be used to persecute gay people. Unfortunately, the experiment had a lot of flaws in its design. It ignited a backlash among artificial intelligence researchers and sociologists, as well as the advocacy organization GLAAD. Gregor Matson wrote a takedown of the study titled, quote, Artificial Intelligence Discovers Gay Face. Sigh. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Oberlin College in Ohio, and I'm also the director of the program in gender, sexuality, and feminist studies. I wanted to speak to Gregor about what he thought the researchers and the journal missed. So we get these kind of studies from time to time that there is some way to detect homosexuality in the body of of, of people, and that somehow it's hidden from human perception. And while there are things about bodies that you can't see, these kinds of studies have a really problematic history and a really deep history. So to me, if you're going to make these kind of claims, you need to grapple with the fact that they've been failing for over 150 years. So what do you think this study actually establishes? Like, what did we actually learn from this? Um, If I understand Philip Cohen's descriptions, when presented with a pool of faces where the computer knows what percentage of them are gay, uh, it can pick them more accurately than an untrained human who is rented through Amazon Mechanical Turk. He wrote that the authors think that nose shape and cheekbones are fixed landmark contours. If they'd ever met a drag queen, they'd know contour is a verb. Yeah, I mean, first it showed up in their author's notes, and then I think secondly, um, Michal uh, Krasinski tweeted, it shows four faces, and it shows these composites of a composite heterosexual and a composite homosexual man and woman. And they claim that gay men have bigger foreheads, but the gay male forehead is kind of leaning forward. It looks like Daniel Radcliffe, and he's leaning (laughs) forward, so of course his forehead looks bigger. Um, And then the other guy looks like some, you know, um, like he got off his tractor and he sort of leaned back. So presumably their their software has a way to adjust for that. But we who watch either, you know, America's Next Top Model or RuPaul's Drag Race know you can dramatically reshape your face with makeup. So the fact that their sample is drawn from a dating website 
we, we can manipulate those photos and we only put out our best photos. They presented the study as a, they said it's, this is like a warning to people in the LGBTQ community that like machine learning could be used by brutal regimes to find gay people and persecute them. What did you think about that framing? So I have like three reactions. The first is when somebody who has never shown that much public concern with LGBT people suddenly has an interest in in warning us about something, you know, I'm always a little skeptical. Second, when you look at the framing of their research, it turns out their research, their, their algorithm can find the most stereotypically gay people. And those gay people and lesbians already know that we're being clocked all the time. So we don't need an algorithm to tell us that we're in danger. And the third thing that bugs me about that framing, and it's one that many critics of the study also have, is they always place homophobia as something that happens far away in brutal regimes in Africa or Southeast Asia, as if there isn't homophobic and transphobic violence plenty around here. So one of the things I put in the blog post was um, one of uh, Michal Kaczynski's uh, defenses is, well, I'm just testing this thing that's off the shelf, like anyone can use it. So I'm warning you of the dangers. But I don't think that someone in North Carolina interested in policing bathrooms would have thought of this necessarily until suddenly we find out, hey, it's off the shelf and it's not that hard to use in a very stereotypical and flawed way. To me, the danger is less that someone in North Carolina is going to try to replicate this and more that they will just take this idea that there is a gay face and extrapolate from there things about, you know, the science of sexual orientation and and just like perpetuate more pseudoscience around that. The, the pseudoscience is, I think, what they're basing it on. So they make this leap that their study somehow supports prenatal hormone development as some cause of, of gay faces or of homosexuality in general. And first, I would dispute the fact that, or their claim that all gay people have this gay face. I mean, there is a gay face. It's, <laughs> uh, you know, I talk about, you know, I can make it. And I could teach you how to make it. It doesn't have anything to do with some intrinsic sexual orientation. It's a cultural practice that I learned. You can learn it. There, there are cultural practices that are associated with homosexuality. Um, but those vary over time. They vary between cultures. And they are learned. So they are not detecting, I don't believe, um, intrinsic or- orientation. You're gay. How did this reading about this make you feel? Well, less as someone who's openly gay and more as someone who is queer and a researcher who does work in this area, to see that something so dumb could get published and that no one flagged this and said, your logical arguments don't add up, except if we accept a bunch of stereotypes and that this got through the peer review process. That just made me disappointed and and angry. You know, look, I have written a lot of bad things, and certainly my early drafts are equally sort of risible. But the fact that a bunch of people 
from a very reputable journal said, hey, this sounds great, go for it. Um, that's, that's a bigger issue than one particular bad study. So um, I'm going to reach out to the journal. Um, is there anything that you would ask them if you got them on the phone? Well, I guess I would want to know, um, were the reviewers chosen by the editors or were they suggested by the, by the authors? Mm-hmm. As it's becoming more and more difficult to get peer review done in a timely way, often journals are soliciting that information from us. Wow. But, you know, peer review is imperfect. Things slip through. But this one just seems like anyone who ever took a Women's Studies 101 class should have said, huh, something's not going right here. And anyone who's taken Stats 1 should have said, huh, it doesn't add up. Yeah, it and then especially looking at the defensiveness of the authors afterward, it just it, it felt like a paper that didn't come from a scientist. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far because, you know, when you look at their other work, it, is, it, it seems solid. But I think, look, there's a, there's a problem here in academia that we're all trying to remedy, which is our research becomes increasingly specialized. And so we're all trying to think, how do you make a contribution that people read up of your very narrow subspecialty. But the minute that you hop over those institutional silos, suddenly you're confronted with vast amount of knowledge that other people take for granted and that you mm-hmm. didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be an example of that. Like it happens all the time. I'm sure that it was motivated by intellectual curiosity. But the reason why we have all this training is to pause and ask the ethical questions about Huh, if I let if I let this study out in the world, you know, what does this say about my discipline? And also the questions of if I don't know this, I had better I'd better really reach out, collaborate with people who can help me, or ask some friends outside of my discipline completely to read this over. And this didn't, you know, the fact that it doesn't reach that for the author, you know, I don't hold them responsible for that. That's what the the peer review process is supposed to do, and, and here clearly it failed. Just after we finished recording, I reached out to Shinobu Kiriyama, one of the editors at the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He declined to answer questions because he said an ethical review of the study is currently underway, but that will take a few weeks to finish. We will keep following the story and check back in then. That's it for The Dispatch. Thank you for listening. Remember, there are so many ways to subscribe to The Dispatch, and now you can find us on Spotify. Just search the app for World Dispatch. I'm Adrian Jeffries. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories. 